Good evening and welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. Tonight we're going to be doing a short series on gratitude. Gratitude. Because we have Thanksgiving coming up, I thought it'd be a good uh, break from everything we've been talking about. And uh, tonight we'll be in Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19, a message entitled, Where are the other nine? Where are the other nine? Well, let me set the scene for you tonight. Imagine with me that every day when you wake up, you face complete and utter rejection. You have a highly communicable skin disease that keeps you at arm's length from everybody in your life. You can't be around anyone. You can't feel the warm embrace of your loved ones or enjoy the conversation. This disease is so bad and people are so disgusted by it that when you show up on the scene, their smiles and their laughter immediately turn to fear and disgust. It's such a horrific disease that when you walk down the street, you are instructed to announce that you are unclean. Unclean, unclean. Had to come from your lips as you walk down the street announcing your shame to all gathered. You can't be with your family. You can't shop in the local market. You can't have children. You can't get married. You can't have a job. Imagine with me for a moment, this kind of life. Well, after living a life like that for years, a man shows up in your life. You've heard stories about this man. You heard that he was a great teacher. You heard that he was a great healer. You heard stories that he even raised people from the dead. He cast out demons. He made the lame to walk. You even heard that he made someone like you clean. He shows up and he's walking down the street of your town and all of a sudden your heart begins to start pounding in desperation from all the loneliness and all the pain and all the suffering and all the hopelessness. Your heart is just pounding as if to pound out of your chest 
And you see this man walking down the street and you cannot contain yourself anymore. And so you scream out from the top of your lungs, Jesus, have mercy on me. And in that moment, this man, this healer stops and he turns and he locks eyes with you. You haven't had contact with another living soul. And this man, in compassion, stops and locks eyes with you. And says, go. Go show yourself to the priest, to the religious men. Now you have to understand, back in the day, it was the priests who were the ones that could pronounce someone who is unclean as being clean. Only the priest could do that. So you with this pronouncement and hope in the desperation you turn from this man who just commanded you to go to the temple and you turn towards the temple and all of a sudden you look down and you realize you are completely healed. Completely healed. The disease that kept you from engaging in any sort of sense of life is gone. And you're made well. You're, you're healed completely. In that moment, what would you do? Well, Dr. Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, writes about an encounter like this. Where a man who is healed... And what he did as a result of being overwhelmed with gratitude and thankfulness. He stopped in his tracks from going to the temple where he could be pronounced clean. And he returned back to the one who showed him kindness the text says that he throws himself at Jesus' feet, praising God. And he says two simple words. Thank you. Now, the story we're going to read tonight out of the Gospel of Luke is interesting because in Luke's story, it's not just one man who's healed. It was actually ten. Ten lepers were healed. But unfortunately, only one returned to Jesus. Only one returned to the one who healed him. And in this case, saved him. And as a matter of fact, the one who returned was a Samaritan. A Samaritan was kind of a cross, a half-breed, Jew and a Gentile. Wasn't even one of Jesus' kinsmen. He was a mixed religious man who didn't even worship the same God as Jesus. And it was this Samaritan who came back to the one who showed him kindness and offered praise and thanksgiving. Now in that moment, Jesus turns to the crowd and I think he asks one of the most haunting questions that anyone could ever be asked. 
He says, where are the nine? <laughs> Let's see, there were ten healed and only one returned. Where are the nine? Well, let's read our text in Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. They had to. That was the law. They had to stay away from everybody. And they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, mastered, Master, have mercy on us. It's interesting, that word master here appears in the New Testament only in Luke's gospel. And it's always used in reference to Jesus. This is the only occasion where the term was used by someone other than the disciples. Epistasis in the original language, it denotes someone who possesses notable authority or power. The lepers use it here to address Jesus, and it indicates that they had some sort of knowledge of his miraculous ability to heal. I mean, why would they not? Everybody else knew about Jesus. Verse 14, continuing, it says, When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. And here comes the question, verse 17, Then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Indicating the others were Jewish men. Verse 19, and he said to them, he said to him, Go, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Father, we pray tonight as we open up your word to Luke chapter 17 that you would bless it, that you would help us to see the love and grace of Christ. Pray that you would give us eyes to see your truth. We ask for your spirit to enable our understanding. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Where are the nine? I'm sure this question pained Jesus to ask. Up to this point, the ten men, really, these ten lepers, they had all acted in unison. They had that leprosy in common. They all had pled for Jesus to heal them. They all had obeyed his command to go and see the priest. They started on their, they all started on their way to the priest. All had been healed. And at that point, the uniformity broke off. It says, as one of them, who surely was full of joy and amazement and wonder, it says, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back toward Jesus, toward the one who healed him. See, they were all overjoyed at the prospect of returning to a normal life, but to do that, they had to go to the priest first to be declared clean. 
They could go back to their life with their family and friends. But only this one individual, this one soul, this one Samaritan grasped the profound implications of what just happened to him. He recognized that he had been in the presence of God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wanted more than just a mere physical healing. How incredible that was. His heart longed for salvation. Not just a physical healing, but a spiritual healing. And I'm sure it pained Jesus' heart to ask this question, where are the nine? But it's a good question for him to ask because it reveals something about our human nature, does it not? At the very basic essence of what Jesus is trying to teach us in this moment is that something has gone wrong. Something has gone awry with the human heart. Something is missing from the human heart. Something is broken in the human heart. And what Jesus identifies as broken in the very core and essence of mankind is gratitude. Gratitude. Specifically, gratitude to God. One commentator, Ken Hughes, says in his commentary on this passage, he puts it like this. He says, one of the scarcest virtues in the human race is gratitude. Isn't that interesting? He's recognizing that never in all of the human existence have we had so much and still been so unhappy. <laughs> I mean, think about it for a moment with me. There's never been another moment in time where we as a people have had so much, so much technology, so much medicine, so many resources, so many hobbies and entertainment. So much as the human race has never had in all of time. We have so much that has never existed before. And yet, so many people are so unhappy there's people employed to make you unhappy. It's called marketing. That's the primary job of marketing, to make you unsatisfied, to make you unhappy. There's people that get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to make you unhappy every day. Isn't it interesting? We can go into the Apple store and buy a brand new Apple phone take it home and big screen new camera faster processor boy you're just you're loving that phone you might have it for two or three months and then you see an advertisement <laughs> coming out the new iPhone bigger and better and faster and all of a sudden the new phone that you bought less than a year ago just doesn't do it anymore. See, never in all of history have we had so much and been so unsatisfied. And these people are out there sowing 
seeds of discourse, making gratitude scarce. When you text someone, <laughs> when you say thank you, what do you put? Usually you don't write out thank you, you just put T-Y. You can't even write it out anymore. Words like thank you are being replaced by upgrade. <laughs> Everything is an upgrade. My house isn't good enough anymore. My car isn't good enough anymore. My, my job, my spouse, go down the list. We live in a culture that is scarce of gratitude and, and really utterly unhappy. Jesus is acknowledging that, is he not? In our culture, thank you, comes out of resistance. The two phrases that are most difficult to say in humanity are this. Number one, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's tough to say. Number two, thank you. Why? Because we're people who are proud. We're proud of our independence. We're proud of not needing anything from anyone. We're proud people that have a hard time admitting that there's something outside of ourselves that could possibly make our lives better. We're self-made people. So, I'm sorry and thank you come out hard from our lips. We hate the thought of meeting someone or something outside of ourselves in order to be made whole. But giving thanks at its root is a confession that we are the less without, without the care and kindness of someone else. That's what giving thanks is. And here in speaking to the crowd, Jesus is teaching us something about genuine faith, about real genuine worship. I mean, he could have turned to the crowd and said anything. But he turns and he says, were there not ten who were healed? Where are the nine? I think he does that because he's teaching us something about genuine faith and worship. Well, this man who was healed in our text, he did three things that reveal the longing in his heart to be reconciled to his God and creator. First of all, he was unable to restrain his joyful praise. Impossible. He began glorifying God, it says, with a loud voice. Luke uses that word, loud voice. It conveys the idea of strong emotion. It's used in other places in the Bible with Elizabeth in Luke 1.42. It's used of the followers of Jesus at the triumphal entry in Luke 19.37. It's even used of the demons when they were confronted by the Son of God. In chapter 4, verse 33, and chapter 8, verse 28 of the Gospel of Luke. See, this may have been the first time in years that this leper was able to speak above a rasping whisper. Because leprosy sometimes affects the larynx and you can't speak the way you used to be able to speak. So he couldn't restrain himself from joyful praise. Secondly, 
It says that he fell on his face at Jesus' feet in worship. What was he doing? He was affirming the deity of Christ. The Old Testament teaches us that God alone was to be worshipped. So because of Jesus' work in his life, he concluded this must be God. So he fell on his feet in worship. And then thirdly, it says that he gave thanks to Jesus. I mean, the other nine, no doubt, intended to worship God in the temple. That's where they were headed. They were headed to go to the priest, to the temple, so they could be declared clean, so they could be restored to their family. But this man, however, did not worship him through religious ritual at a temple. From which, by the way, God had long since withdrawn his glory. Instead, this man, the one who was healed, recognized the manifestation of divine power. He recognized the grace that he had witnessed. And he worshiped God in Christ, the true temple, the one in whom Colossians 2.9 says, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. What is Jesus teaching us here? He's teaching us that gratitude, thanksgiving, is central to a saving faith and lifestyle of worship. Let me explain. Gratitude is central to saving faith and a lifestyle of worship. It's impossible to experience the saving grace of God and have a heart void of gratitude. It's impossible. I mean, just think about what saving grace is. What is the saving grace of God? Well, the Bible says by nature we were born into God's wrath. We're sinners by nature, deserving nothing but the wrath of God. We're destined for eternity apart from God, destined for a life of misery, destined for hell. Yet by no effort or merit of our own, the Bible says we're given eternal and everlasting life in Jesus Christ. How can genuine saving faith be void of gratitude? How do our hearts not beat with gratitude day in and day out? See, I think Jesus is reminding the crowd here, the religious folk, of what ongoing worship is like. Ongoing worship is fueled by our thankfulness for what God has done, for what Jesus has done. If we are to be people who glorify God in all of life, we ought to be people that are filled with thankfulness and gratitude for all that Jesus has done for us and continues to do, by the way. And we know this because in verse 16, we see that the guy who was healed from his leprosy, it says it fell, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving Jesus thanks. 
Do you notice Jesus' response there? How does Jesus respond to this man? Verse 19, he says, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is interesting. We have to let these words have their deep, deepest meaning. That word well is, a, is different in the original from what it reads here in the English. It's actually better translated whole. Whole. Your faith has made you whole. It doesn't translate the word katharizo, which means to be cleansed, like in verse 14. It doesn't even translate the word eomai, which means to be healed, in verse 15. This word in verse 19, whole or well, is the word sozo. And it's a New Testament term for being saved. It was this man alone out of ten. All ten were miraculously healed. But you know what? He received the second miracle of salvation from sin. He was saved. His trust, his gratitude, his humility, commitment, love, praise, and worship, all these things mark his faith in Jesus Christ as that faith saves. So Jesus says to him, your faith has made you whole or well. Now he's already been healed of his leprosy. His skin disease is gone at this point. The thing that kept him from enjoying life, that was already taken care of. But Jesus said, your faith has made you whole. What is he talking about? See, this indicates that even though he was healed physically, when he returned to Jesus, he still wasn't whole. He was missing something. There was still something missing. You see, externally he was well. Physically he was well. But internally there was something wrong. There was something wrong with his heart. Something was missing. What was missing? What was missing? Well, in that moment we have to believe that he received the forgiveness of his sin. See, what he was missing was reconciliation between him and his creator. What was missing was eternal life. What was missing was the removal of all alienation and distance, not just between people physically here on earth. That was done by God healing his leprosy. But Jesus was able to remove all the alienation and distance between him and God. See, what was missing was his salvation. You see, leprosy might have kept them from enjoying this earth. They didn't have a good life here on earth if you had leprosy. But this individual sin kept him from enjoying his creator. And Jesus shows us this, and he asks the question. He begs the question, where are the nine? 
All ten were healed, but only one was saved. What's that mean? That means saving faith and genuine worship cannot exist apart from gratitude. Two things in the Bible that the Word of God commands us to do more than anything else. Two things we see in Scripture commanded more than anything else. First of all, are to rejoice. We're commanded to rejoice. And secondly, guess it, we're, we're commanded to give thanks to God. See, our God is not some taskmaster up in the sky. The Bible is filled with commands. He wants more than anything for us to experience that sense of divine joy and a sense of fulfilling gratitude to him for who he is and what he's done for us. Paul summed it up this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 to 18. He says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to anyone and to everyone. Here they come, verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. And there it is in verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. See, according to the Apostle Paul, the will of God is to take responsibility for one another, to rejoice always, to pray always, to give thanks in all circumstances. So if you're one of those people who's trying to figure out, you're trying to discover the will of God for you, simply read this verse. It's right there in black and white. You don't have to go on a searching expedition. This is what God wants for you. This is who God is. This is his desire for you. To have a sense of responsibility for the community of faith, for the people of God, and that we would be people filled with divine joy and unlimited gratitude toward the heavens for his love and gracious provision. All life filled with joy and thanks. That's what the Psalms indicate. Psalm 118, verse 1, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Or in Psalm 100, verse 4 and 5, it tells us, Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Even in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5, it clearly spells out God's will. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. And say amen to that one, right? The days are definitely evil. Do not be foolish, therefore, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Down in verse 20, one of the wills of the Lord here that he's declaring is giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We could go on and on verse after verse that show us what God desires for his people. 
what true worship is. It's when we are the people that are filled with divine joy and hearts of divine gratitude for all that God has done for us. But joy isn't always easy to come by, is it? We live in a world that's at war with our own joy, and we live in a world that's really at war with any sense of gratitude whatsoever. Once in a while, I, I get a, a bad case of, they call it vertigo, where everything begins to spin. I haven't had it in a long time. Knock, knock on wood, thank the Lord. Uh, but I can remember when I had vertigo before, I'd be laying in bed, sometimes for days, and the room spinning out of control. And your stomach's nauseated, and you're trying to keep the room from spinning and you're just praying and praying and asking God to make it stop. It's a horrible, horrible thing. And then finally, sometimes after days, it just simply isn't there. It just goes away. And I remember being so thankful when it's gone. And immediately when I get up and everything's not spinning anymore, I'm, I'm kind of cautious I'm careful how I turn my head. I'm careful that I don't get up too quickly or too suddenly because I don't want that vertigo to come back. And you know what I notice happens after a week or so of not having the vertigo? The fear of it coming back is gone. It's gone. Pretty soon I'm jumping around, shaking my head. Doesn't, I don't even think about it. I just wake up and go about my day. It was like it was never even there. I take it for granted not having the room spinning like that. See, gratitude and thanksgiving are hard. They're hard for us because sin and Satan are constantly at work to strip us of the one thing we were created by God for, which is divine gratitude. He desires our hearts be filled with worship and gratitude. You see it in 2 Timothy. You see it in Romans. All of these passages tell us what's missing in the human heart is gratitude, thanksgiving. Romans 1.21 tells us, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And then it says this, nor give him thanks. See, gratitude is, is broken, and the gospel is at work to redeem it. The gospel is at work taking place, taking people and forming them into a, a people who are filled with divine joy and unlimited praise and thanksgiving. That's what the gospel does. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. See, our hearts are broken. There's something wrong, and Jesus is pointing this out in this text. He's showing us that we're missing something that we were created for by God. 
And the wisdom of Solomon encourages us here that we need to guard our hearts. And one of the things that we need to guard our hearts from is being stripped of gratitude. Let's look at a, a couple things here quickly that strip our hearts of gratitude. We can name all kinds of things, but let's just focus on three. We can name things like comparison and cynicism, consumerism, all those things strip our hearts of gratitude. But I kind of drew out three here for us tonight. First of all, the idea of familiarity. Familiarity. We often hear the phrase familiarity bring, breeds contempt. I think you know that you live with your spouse for a long time. What happens? You end up taking each other for granted. Or maybe you have a job and you have it for a long time. What do you do? You take your job for granted. If you have a car and you have that car for a long time, you take it for granted. We have a tendency for this because familiarity just breeds contempt. We take things for granted because they become very what? Familiar to us. And I think what happens, especially for the people today in our culture who live in this hyper-religious culture, what happens is our familiarity with God breeds this kind of discontent toward him. I mean, we would never say that, but it happens in our hearts. We kind of take God for granted. One of the scenes in C.S. Lewis, The Lion, Witch, and the, the Wardrobe, is when one of the characters, Susan, is having a conversation with Mr. Beaver, and Mr. Beaver tells Susan that Aslan, the ruler of Narnia, is a lion. And she's shocked by this because she thought that the ruler of Narnia was going to be a man. <laughs> And she finds out that the ruler's a lion. And they're getting ready to go and find this ruler. And she's hesitant because the ruler's a lion. <laughs> I'm a little bit nervous about meeting a lion. I can meet another man, but nervous about meeting a lion. And she asked Mr. Beaver this fascinating question. She asked, is he safe? Is he safe? And his response is very clear. No, he's not safe at all. He's good, and he's the king, but he's a lion. I think that teaches us a lot about how our hearts have kind of uh, domesticated God. We've, we've, we've taken God and we've domesticated him to fit within the boundaries of our familiarity. We have a tendency to reduce God to what makes sense to us and makes us most comfortable. Someone said, in the beginning, God made us in his image. <laughs> and ever since then, we've been returning the favor. What do we do? We put God in a box Beloved, God is an all-consuming fire. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is completely holy and perfect and pure in every way. 
The Bible says he is light, and in him there is no darkness. He is the, ones who, he is the one who can breathe and create something, everything around us, out of nothing. He is the one in which we get our breath. The mountains were created by him. The stars were hung by him. The mountains were formed by him. Rushing rivers reveal his power. Animals live life and take breath because of the God who created everything. And this God created us. His most beloved creation. And he put all those things and subject to our feet for our joy. Sometimes I think we treat Jesus like a pincushion instead of the victorious Savior who defeated death. The thing in the world that everyone is terrified of. Jesus conquered death. We have to strike from our minds that God is some out-of-touch grandpa in the clouds trying to figure out Facebook. <laughs> How do I comment on this post? How do I retreat this? See, he actually created the person who invented Facebook, believe it or not. So we project these images on God and we reduce him to something that makes us feel a little more comfortable. That's why when I read through the Old Testament, I love the story of Uzzah, the Levite who attempted to catch the ark. Well-meaning guy. They were transporting the ark in a way that God did not tell them to. And it was about ready to topple over. And because he was concerned, he reached out and he grabbed the ark. What happens? He died immediately. God struck him dead. You weren't supposed to touch the ark, period. See, it's a reminder to us that we can't just be flippant with the God of all creation. Yes, he's king and he's good, but he's not safe. He's perfect, he's righteous, he's God. Proverbs 14, 26, 27 tells us this, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Or Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. God tells us very clearly, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Verse 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So the first thing there is the idea of familiarity. Secondly, a sense of entitlement. A sense of entitlement. Three things that adversely affect our hearts. The idea of familiarity and then a sense of entitlement. I mean, we have such a sense of entitlement in this day and age we live in. I think we forget that sometimes. You remember 20 plus years ago when if you had uh, internet, AOL, remember you'd sign in and the modem would make all these gurgling sounds and then finally it would chime on 
and you'd hear, you've got mail. You're so excited to be able to get communication on your computer. Sometimes people would send you a picture and you'd sit there for five or ten minutes waiting for the crazy picture to download. I mean, think about it. Today, if we wait five seconds, what are we doing? We're picking up the phone and calling AT&T or Comcast or whoever our internet provider is. You've got to fix this. My, my, my internet connection is too slow. Why? Why do we feel that way? Because we become entitled. Remember the days when you used to go to the bathroom alone? Now we have all of our Facebook and Instagram friends with us. I mean, we can't even go to the bathroom without our phone. Titus 3 reminds us of what we deserve. Titus 3, verse 3, says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. See, that's a picture of who we are without the saving grace of God. We're vile, we're wretched, we're on our way to hell. I'm so thankful those verses don't stop there. In verse 4 it says, but, don't you love the buts of Scripture? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, verse 5, praise the Lord, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, when we have a sense of entitlement, we for, have forgotten where we have come from. And the sense of entitlement is all around us. It comes with everything. We go to church, we think we're entitled to a certain worship style or a certain preaching style. We can go online and listen to the best of the best of the best in the world. And we've kind of curated our, our world for our own liking. Including, by the way, our own worship. And in doing so, our preferences oftentimes overthrow God's purposes. Our preferences oftentimes overthrow God's purposes. I remember I was speaking at a, a youth gathering years ago when I first started out as a youth pastor and we had a youth outreach at the church and printed up flyers for the kids to take to school. It was kind of a big deal. We had a worship band and guitars and keyboards and drums and everything and pretty lively music. And kids invited their friends and whatnot. And, and when I spoke, I was sharing my message and I was using illustrations that would captivate the teenager's mind and things like that. And, and I remember when we were worshiping and when I was teaching, I was watching one older man who was there. 
And uh, I didn't know who he was. But I noticed that during the worship, he was clapping and singing, and he seemed engaged even when I was speaking. And I thought, I, I want to get to know this guy. And, and I remember speaking to him afterwards, and I think probably as a young youth pastor wanting some affirmation and accolades from someone who is older, I, uh, he seemed like he was having a good time. I simply asked him a question. I said, boy, you, you were really enjoying yourselves. Did, did, did you enjoy the, the music and, and the message? And he looked at me with a straight face, and he says, no, I didn't enjoy any of it. <laughs> I hated it. That's what he said. And I, I said, excuse me? I thought he was kidding. He wasn't kidding. He elaborated. He said, you know what? I don't care for your kind of music. It's too loud. You didn't play any hymns. And by the way, did anybody ever tell you that you speak way too fast for someone to follow you. And by the way, you mumble a lot. It makes it hard for somebody like me to understand even what you're saying. And I just stood there in, in unbelief almost. Then he put his hand on my shoulder and he kind of pulled me a little closer to him. And he says, see that? That boy over there? And I remember he was new. I thought, yeah, yeah, okay. He goes, that's my grandson. And I've been praying for him to come to church for years. And apparently one of his friends handed him one of your flyers that you, you gave out at school. And I was going to just drop him off, but I wasn't real familiar with your church, so I thought I better come in and check it out. And this is the first time my grandson's been around people of faith, and he seems to be enjoying himself. You know what? That guy got it. He got it. He made the main thing the main thing. He didn't want to be there. Music probably gave him a headache. But he laid down his preferences so others could hear the message of Christ. See, entitlement will rob us of the beauty of participating in the mission of God. It will rob us of gratitude and thankfulness, not for what we experience, but for what we've already been given in Christ. So the things that harm our hearts are the idea of familiarity, a sense of entitlement, and then quickly, lastly, instant gratification. <laughs> Instant gratification. We live in a culture where we have more access to information and, and more access to food and luxuries than we can ever even imagine. I mean, I can order something tonight and have it on my doorstep in the morning if I want. I pay $100 a year for Prime on Amazon so that I can have things quicker. I don't want to wait we have fast food, we have internet, we have podcasts, we have instant gratification, but you know what? It's killing us. It's killing us. I really believe it's creating a, a microwave Christianity that tends to consume things like 10 happy hops to heaven. 
See, the problem with that is we may have a lot of people filling our churches, but we have very few genuine converts or disciples of Christ. Jesus mentions this. He told a parable of the different types of soils. And some of those people represented by the soils are just withering away. See, God calls us to long obedience in the same direction. And it's very hard to find today. Long obedience in the same direction. Because we want everything so quick. We have 20 20-year-old kids that want the same lifestyle that their parents have. And their parents have worked for 60 years to get that lifestyle. But they want it now. And waiting is so hard. I don't like to wait. We've substituted substance for busyness. And we filled our lives up with so much junk that to be honest, there's no room for God anymore. Eugene Peterson, who was a theologian, he wrote the, the paraphrase, by the way, of Scripture, the message, devotional reading of Scripture. He says this, busyness is the enemy of spirituality. Busyness is the enemy of spirituality. It is essentially laziness. It's doing the easy thing instead of the hard thing. It is... Filling our time with our own actions instead of paying attention to God's actions. Where are the nine? <laughs> Where are they? Has our God become too small to captivate our hearts with thankfulness? Have our hearts become too proud or hardened to soften them? with divine joy? Are our lives simply too busy to thank God? Where are the nine? I hope we see tonight that God's desire for us is joy and thanks, thanksgiving, thankfulness. All that we experience, all that is meant to produce worship. Everything we have, every dollar, every comfort, every luxury, it's meant to produce an overwhelming sense of gratitude to the one who made us. See, Thanksgiving, that's, that's the posture of heaven. You know what heaven is going to be like? It's going to be filled with the heavenly hosts and the redeemed saints who are spending eternity eternity giving thanks and praising God for what he's done. But do you know what Jesus reminds us in this text? He reminds us we don't have to wait to heaven to experience a heart filled with gratitude. Where are the nine? I don't know, but I know one thing for certain that you and I can take up company with the one. The one who returns today, wherever you're at in your journey of faith, you and I can join the one and collapse at Jesus' feet, praising God and giving thanks for all that he's done. 
I mean, leprosy is a weird disease. It sounds strange. But you know what? That's the least of God's worries. Jesus says it like this, it would be better off for you to enter into heaven maimed than going into hell whole. Jesus is inviting us to find truthfulness in him. Our hearts restored, filled with joy, thankfulness, and gratitude. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you clearly have made us to be thankful to you, to worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, we pray for each heart that's listening to this message. Lord, I pray that they have trusted you as their Lord and Savior. If not, I pray that tonight might be the night that they cry out to you. Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Christ paid the price. He paid the debt. You simply need to reach out and trust him as your Lord and Savior. He'll save you too. Help us, Lord, as a country to keep our hearts and minds focused. We pray that righteousness would prevail. We know it ultimately will. But Lord, we pray that your will be done in all these things. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.